Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 33 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this, our first episode of 2014, we'll be delving into a topic that has plenty of tongues wagging. Golf World magazine contributing writer Brett Avery this week published a list ranking the top 100 players of the PGA Tour since comprehensive statistics started being kept in 1980. As with any list that ranks anything, it has not surprisingly proved controversial, but of course that is half the fun of it. So Brett will be joining us shortly to discuss all that. But before I introduce him, let me let me bring in my co-hosts. As always, from the US blogger, critic, architect, author, Jeff Shackelford. Shack, welcome. It has been too long. November 27, the last show we recorded. This is crazy. What have we been doing? Well, the wraparound schedule, you know, is very, very uh, stressful, and we, we have to pick our, our uh, spots where we take a break. Time to take a break. You did say that it was going to mess with the West Coast swing, and of course it has. And it has. As far as study. We might discuss your burgeoning television career a little later as well. I've been to ask you about that, uh, that reason, but we won't do that just yet. From here in Australia, player, architect, commentator on all things to do with the game, Mike Clayton. Clayton's welcome. I'm particularly interested to hear your thoughts on this topic. You're the only one of the... Th- four of us, obviously, who would have actually played with some of these people. So I'm hoping you've read the whole list and uh, have some words of wisdom for us. Uh, yeah, right. I've played with a few of them and it's, um, it has been too long. We've been overwhelmed by tennis down here, so let's get back to the golf. Isn't that just yep. fascinating stuff, tennis over the net and back again? Uh, finally, <laughs> the man of the hour, Brett Avery himself, coming to us, I suspect, from a secure bunker somewhere in the uh, the US. Brett, it's great to have you aboard. How's the fallout been? Trying to rank the top 100 players of the PGA Tour is just like putting a great big target on your back, is it not? Uh, in a ways it is, but uh, I- I'm interested the, to see uh, the, the players... Uh, that uh, have drawn the most comment. Obviously, uh, uh, a lot of people think just as a knee-jerk reaction, Jack Nicholas should be one, number one on any list. But uh, when they take the time to actually read through the methodology and understand uh, what the parameters were, uh, we've gotten some pretty good comments from people, uh, favorable comments. Well, that, of course, is the interesting sort of thing, isn't it, the parameters that you use. Let me just run through the top 10 for people so that, uh, so that they all know what we're talking about. So this is players on the PGA Tour. Important to point out, isn't it, Jeff? You'll get complaints from Europe yes. and Australia and everywhere else, won't you? It's <laughs> PGA Tour players, and this is because they had the statistics. So at number one, we've got yep. Tiger Woods, no surprise there. Number two, Greg Norman, which is interesting. Ahead of number three, Phil Mickelson. Jack Nicholas at four, as you mentioned, not at number one. Brett, Vijay Singh, five. Ernie Els, six. Tom Watson, seven. David Duval, eight. Rory McIlroy, nine. And Nick Faldo at number 10. An interesting mix, Brett. Brett, is this somewhat what you expected? And give us a little thumbnail sketch of what the criteria you used were to try and rank players. Yeah, I, I would say it's pretty much uh, where I thought a lot of the players would shake out. The first conversation I had with Jaime Diaz, the editor of the magazine, last February when he proposed this project, he uh, was intrigued by the fact that no one had ever ranked the uh, today's players. You had all-time rankings, you had career rankings, but you didn't have uh, of the moment for the uh, of the game, if you will, uh, for the last uh, couple of decades. And the phrase that he kept using was, "How good was your good?" And to me, as a statistician, what that meant was try and wash out as much background noise as you can, identify as best as possible the top play for each player, cast a wide net so you've got a lot of candidates, (laughs) 
Welcome to New York. I was going to say and, New York in shutdown, <laughs> is it? Or is about to go into shutdown by the sound of it? <laughs> yeah, the Super Bowl here uh, this week. So we've got a few people riding around in sirens. Um, so cast as wide a net as possible to get as uh, a, a, a valid pool, if you will, and then take a look at their performance. And not just performance career or even year to year, but day to day. How did you do every time you teed it up? And how did you do against the other guys who were eligible for consideration? So I came up with a formula that had basically two components. The first I called performance, and that's how many times did you play, where did you play, and how did you do? What was your, your tournament finish? And the second component I called versus peers. It was only comparing the players in a season who were candidates eligible for this listing, and there were 178 over the 34 years, and it had to do with scoring. How strong was your schedule using field average as the kind of a proxy for strength of schedule? And then how much did you beat the field average, or did you finish behind the field average, every day? These players should be beating the field average by almost every day, or on, on a majority of days, and they should be beating it by a lot if they're really good. I mean, it stands to reason you win a tournament when you're beating everybody else in terms of scoring. Um, you had to have three victories at some point from 1980 on. And if you're an ex existing player like Jack Nicholas, before 1980, we only counted from 1984 because that's the period that the tour has absolutely rock solid, complete statistical analysis, uh, information. Sorry. We did let. A few players in if they had two, two victories, if at least one of those was a major. So, for example, Graham McDowell is the only player who has only two victories to make the modern 100. But otherwise, it was pretty much a statistical free-for-all. The list that you've got, based on all that, was it somewhat what you... I mean, you can't help but have a preconceived notion before you start a project like this. I would imagine, in your own mind, you're thinking, well, on this basis, you'd think that these you know, would be the top five or the top ten. Was it roughly what you thought it would be? Based on what you've just said there, it's actually quite remarkable that Jack Nicholas is in there at all, let alone at all. before. Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I would actually say, no, I had no preconceived notion. I... I had no rooting interest, if you will, in any of this, short of knowing who number one was going to be, unless we penalized someone for the number of victories that they had, <laughs> Woods was going to be number one. And that actually was liberating, because if this had been another scenario, if you took Tiger Woods out, there was a possibility that Formula One could have player A as number one, Formula Two could have player B, for, you know, you could go right down the list, and then it would be very difficult to decide how do, we, how do we figure this out. Knowing he was going to be number one gave me the opportunity to tinker more with the formula, to fine-tune it, and I kept looking at the bottom of the list. I kept looking at 80th through 120th, because that's where there were very small differences between players. Uh, but there were significant differences between players. Mm -hmm. I had ideas. I had people I wanted to know where they were going to. I mean, I, I was curious where they were going to finish. Payne Stewart, for example, died in 1999, had one of the top years of his life um, when he passed away. Where was he going to fall out? Uh, Ballesteros uh, didn't play a lot. We actually only count 84 starts 
on the PGA Tour for Seve, he finishes 11th. Wow. But that's, you know, I was more interested where, where players would get to than thinking, well, so-and-so has to be a top 25 player or so-and-so really shouldn't be on the list. Clates, you're a, you're a man who's played with a lot of these people and you know you know a lot about the game and the professional game. You've had a quick look at the list. I don't know whether you've read it in depth in the, the article that accompanies it. Uh, what was your gut-feeling knee-jerk reaction when you sort of saw the list, the top 10, I suppose, and then perhaps the bottom 20, as uh, Brett points out there, is almost equally interesting, isn't it? Who does sneak in at the bottom end of the list? I think it shows what an incredibly consistent player Greg Norman was. You know, his career's maligned by many for... The fact he didn't win what everyone assumed he was going to win. But I always, can, compared with Fowler, who was who clearly had a much superior record in the majors, Greg, you know, day in, day out, as Brett talks about, the day in, day out stuff, Greg shot more rounds in the 60s, had more top 10s, more top 5s, more top 3s, fewer missed cuts than almost anybody for his whole career. He was an incredible player. And just, the startling thing about Greg is that he didn't win 10 majors, really, because Clearly, in his time, he was the day-to-day best player on the tour. So it didn't surprise me that he was second. I suppose VJ obviously, has just been there forever and just been like a rock in terms of consistency. And the thing with Seve is that what, what the list is, obviously, because it's absolutely centred only around the PGA Tour, it, it, it's not a list of the best players in the world over that time. It's a list of the best players in America. So... Sevy would clearly be in that top 10 if it included his play outside of America. Right. As a player, Clates, and you know, amongst players, uh, would this list sit better with players, do you think, with professional golfers uh, than some of the other lists that we sort of come up with this sort of stuff? Do, do pros think this is a good way, would pros think this is a good way to rank pros against each other, do you think? Well, it's statistically very fair. I think, as it pointed out, it... Uh, play, uh, people rank players essentially based on the majors, really. How many majors has a guy won? So, you know, there's this argument about how does Larry Nelson compare with Greg Norman? Larry Nelson won three, Greg won two. But, I mean, Nelson, I think Brett was in the, where was he, 60 or 70 or something in the list when Greg was number two. So, and Andy North wasn't in there at all, I don't think. Uh, Andy North, right. Andy North didn't qualify because he didn't uh, reach the three. Uh, the three victory yeah. uh, minimum, and Larry Nelson is eighty fourth. Yeah. And again, Larry, you know, Larry's one of those guys that uh, we begin in nineteen eighty, so we we don't consider part of his career. Yeah, yeah. He, he was what nine seventy four when he started, probably. So he missed yeah. six, six pretty good years of his career. Yeah. Yep. So it's yeah, it's um, always interesting, I think, to rank players. And but 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 you're right. It, until now, it's always been sort of weighted towards the majors with almost no statistical analysis, really. So it's interesting to see how it actually, you, know, you actually sit there and do it properly and day to day and how do these guys perform and how it comes out. And you can't really argue with it. You can think, well, I think he was a better player than him, but, well, there are the numbers. Mm. It's you know, not and, ranking a golf course. And Mike makes a, a really good point that it is play only on the U.S. circuit um, a lot of people have mentioned to me that Faldo looks really low at 10. We only have uh, 180 of his starts. But he, he played 16 weeks in the U.S. the week before a major and only finished top 10 four times. 
and he finished outside the top 25. We gave points to top 25 finishes, and we gave no value to anything below that except a penalty for missing the cut. He finished outside the top 25 nine times and missed a cut on a 10th week. Uh, He used those events. He really perfected the peaking at the right moment at the major. That's why he won six of them. And so he's very successful in that regard. But the week before a major, he wasn't successful. And uh, this ranking takes that into effect. He was just practicing the week before a major. He wasn't paying any attention to how he finished in that tournament. He was just there tuning up and making sure his clubs were right and his grips the right thickness and his shafts felt good and the putter was working (laughs) and the ball was right. yeah. yeah, right time zone. Yes, yeah. Yeah. meticulous. Yeah. I think is the word that you might use to describe <laughs> Faldo when it comes to preparation. Shat, I think you've got something um, to uh, throw. Yeah, Clayton, you'll get a kick out of this. What one of the things that's really neat? I just got the actual magazine, the the print copy, and the what's online right now doesn't do justice to what Brett's put together in terms of really, really. And I'm not a I'm not a huge stats person, but I, I love horse racing and I love some of the, the the being able to look at past performances and different little things. And Brett has come up with all sorts of neat little stats out of this package. And one of them, uh, Clates, is uh, final rounds and, and how these guys stack up. And uh, Tiger Woods was number one and and uh, with a with a 2.5 stroke differential from the field in final rounds. Jack Nicholas was second at 1.8, and Greg Norman was third. You know, we we think of Greg Norman blowing the uh, the 96 Masters, uh, but you forget he was actually a, a pretty good final round player, at least uh, when you get into these numbers like this. So, anyway, that's just one of the many cool yeah. little things in this uh, package. It's uh, and Brad, I'm sure there's several other uh, stats you would suggest people. Uh, kind of dig into and and look at well the stroke differential is a different way of looking at it um and especially uh when you're talking about the final rounds let me i'll give you a quick example of two players who look to be equal but are not and that that's the difference that is shown in this ranking let's say you have two guys uh who win a tournament in a season. Now we only have like 45 to 50 tournaments so you say well they're you know they've had a really good year. One guy has seven other top 10s and loses in a playoff. The other guy misses 12 cuts. Now when you take a look at the totality in the week to week, the first player is obviously much better than the second player, but our minds are conditioned because we're always saying, "Oh, he won." last March in Doral, Uh so he had a really good year. Well, I can't tell you, we crunched the numbers on 1,945 seasons. There were more than 200 seasons that scored a negative score on a scale that has a four-point average. Mm. There are a lot of guys who go out and win and then do not very much the rest of the year, and yet we are conditioned to think of them as having a really good year because, hey, there was one week to beat everybody, which is a great accomplishment. But when you yeah. take a look at it day to day and week to week, it it's a little different situation. I remember and, one year that um, David Frost told that bunker shot to beat Norman in New Orleans, I think, and he'd missed nine cuts in a row before that week. Something crazy, yes. you know, just which was unbelievable. <laughs> was having a terrible run, and all of a sudden he wins a tournament, and he, you know. He, Jumped up to probably in the top twenty on the main list. Wow, that guy's playing well. 
Whereas, in fact, yes. he's been playing horrible golf for him. Didn't uh, McDowell do something like that last year, Clates? He went missed cut, win, missed cut, missed cut, missed cut, win, win, missed cut, missed cut. He either won or he missed he the cut. I think he had a, yeah. a, a streak yeah. like that uh, last year, no. which was a bit odd. Brett, how can you live in that city? That's driving me nuts. How long have <laughs> you got to put up with that for? That's insane. <laughs> I, you know, the only week that's like this, and I have to say, I live at, at an intersection with two very busy streets. Uh, the only other week of the year that's like this is the week uh, before know. Christmas. Oh, it's oh. just. What about when the? Uh, I thought the UN General Assembly is. A oh bit, uh, well, that's yeah. I used to yeah, live yeah. a little further down near the UN, and that week is uh, UN General Assembly and uh, Clinton Global Initiative Week. You just oh. want to uh, go out of town and. <laughs> Sit in a forest somewhere. Plates will take the morning to Peninsula anytime, I think. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good spot. To what you're putting up with there. Brett, what sort of feedback have you had? I would imagine it's been mixed. People get very, very snarky about these sorts of lists. Oh, they want to argue no, every they... point and tell you how wrong you were about this. What's been some of both the good and the bad reaction that you've had? They love where everyone is. Nobody ever gets upset. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the Nicholas, the knee-jerk reaction of Jack is the greatest player in the history of the game, and any list should have him number one. Uh, I, I understand that sentiment, but that's not what we're looking at here. Uh, and, and as you said, I mean, it is surprising that he's number four. He, he really uh, did not play well. Those last 1980 was a good year. Um, but the rest of it, I mean, he basically says, I basically uh, was retired from 1980 on, and he still finished fourth in this list. Um, our European friends, no doubt, uh, feeling that uh, some of those players, uh, certainly Faldo and Seve, uh, are a little low. Um, it, what's interesting is uh, I think the, the players who have on Twitter who have been thankful of where they are. Uh, the first player uh, reaction that I saw was yesterday morning, someone who had, uh, who had gone online and taken a look at the all 100 had uh, grabbed Bob Estes, a uh, friend of Bob yeah. Estes, uh, who finished 81st and Bob came back and he was like, you know, this is great. This is fantastic. I've seen a few other players. Um, I, I, I think it's going to take a little while for people to get their arms around it. Uh, you really do, as, as Jeff said, you really do appreciate it once you take a look at the numbers and see where some of the things shake out, especially when you're talking about the stroke differentials to the field average. Mm, indeed. Did you say you spent nearly 12 months putting this together? It's a, it seems like a huge project, and frankly, not being a fan of mathematics, it would have left me cold by about the end of <laughs> last year. You obviously continued on. Uh, well, I guess to show that what really uh, underscores that we are so conditioned by all-time performance, um, Jaime and I had the first discussion on February 15th, and the first two proposals I made to him were essentially career uh, lists, and he kept saying, no, 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 you know, this is what I, I wanted to get a little more of this. So I, I had part of the idea, but and uh, most of the formula, but not all the way to do it. Um, I really spent um, a month and a half uh, tinkering with the formula, uh, working on it, coming back, working on it, coming back. And once I had the final formula in uh, late July, I started crunching numbers. And it was 1,945 seasons. It's a little more than 47,000 individual tournament starts and a little over 110,000 individual rounds. So that was a lot of information to scrape off the tour database and uh, start to crunch. And I have to 
before I forget, uh, the tour database, uh, people do not have access to what I had access to. And the stuff that they have since 1980 is really fantastic. You can go in and find out almost anything about a player. And were it not for that, uh, we never would have been able to uh, to produce this. Well, it's changing the game, isn't it? And Shaq had some really yeah. interesting stuff about that just recently. And Mark Brody's done some amazing well, stuff with that shot link, hasn't he? Yeah, now that's kind of, I'm wondering, Rod, uh, when looking at this, if, if Brett thinks this is sort of the this and what Brody's doing, we're, we're about to see sort of a... Um, a modernization of golf where uh, numbers just become so vital and, and become an interesting part of how people follow the game. Again, compare, let's say like baseball or horse racing, some of these other sports where stats are such a big part of it. I mean, just looking at, I got to, I got to say this one, this is just killing me that there's a sidebar with the package, the best seasons of all time. Tiger Woods has eight of the 10 best <laughs> And it's just, you know, just looking at his name there, it's just incredible. What, you know, Tom Watson in 1980 at number six and Vijay Singh at number 10 in 2004 were the only two other than Tiger Woods uh, on the list of the all-time best seasons. I mean, I just, that's the kind of stuff I love out of this. Brett, Brett's brilliant at putting this stuff together and, and picking through it. I like kind of these sorts of big-picture stats like this that really do say something, but... Uh, Anyway, you know, there was a question in there somewhere. Well, go, uh, golf, uh, back when the tour started keeping, capturing comprehensive individual statistics like fairways, hitting greens, and regulation, this was 1980. In the late 70s, they looked at other sports, especially baseball, and there were no statistics. There was nothing. I mean, you really you had three statistics. You had the money list, you had the win list, the victory list, and you had... Uh, career majors and that was it uh you really didn't go beyond that and starting in 1980 when the tour started capturing statistics they were very simple fairways hit greens and regulation number of putts and that's because every scorekeeper with every group had a very simple form and they had to check a box did he hit the fairway on this hole yes did he hit the green on this hole yes and they had to and they compiled most of that by hand in the very few, earliest years. So that's why a lot of the statistics that we have used in golf for the last, you know, f for 25 years were very simple because we didn't have the capability. And the last 10 years, especially with the personal computer uh, and the laser finders that we're able to use with ShotLink, we now can go in and find some of these things like like um, strokes gained putting, and some of the stats that are going to come out in the next few years. Scoring average is important. Scoring average is a very important tool. But what is a better tool is stroke differential. I can, I can give you a tournament uh, a setup where you can play 15, uh, 15 starts last year, and your field average, what the field averages for the week for those 15 tournaments, is going to be under 70. You shoot two shots under that, you're in territory that never, nobody's ever been in. You're, in 60, you're down in 67. But if I play a really weak schedule, I have an advantage on a guy who plays a really strong schedule. So, it, so using that metric, using stroke differential, is far, far stronger. And as Jeff says, we're going to have all these numbers in the next... I mean, we've, we're starting to see them. In the next five years, we're going to be looking at the game entirely differently. It's going to be money ball for golf. 
That's the essence of what we're seeing, isn't it? Is that yeah. the strokes gained putting tells you a lot more than putts per round or average putts per green in regulation, doesn't it? They tell very different stories. It really is about how you perform against the field because that's uh, who you're playing against. Um, Clayton, you were just asking Jeff there in the background. Uh, we have oh, yeah, technical um, stuff here about Tom Kite. You, you amaze me with the stuff that you just know off the top of your head. What were you asking there? Well, but I just remember t- talking about great seasons. I remember Tom Kite, I think in 1981, I, he won at Dorala, and he had, I think he had 18 top 10s in, in the season. So some crazy consistent year where he was, he was one of the first guys to go with the Dave, with the, which was the Moneyball thing, really. The first stage of that was going with three wedges and really emphasizing the scoring inside 100 yards. Where did Kite's 1981 season rank? Can you figure that out from... What you've got Nin- 1981, he had 21 top 10s wow. out of 26 <laughs> starts. Yeah, yeah. Not in the top no, 10. it's 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 uh, it's a crazy kind of thing. Um, he that's scored one of, the of all time. If if you discount the number of wins, that's one of the most extraordinary years any player's ever had. Really, he had uh, 13 points on our scale, and again, roughly four is the average for all of the 1900 rounds. And now I'm digging through my stacks of paper to mm-hmm. figure out he was number... Ah, yeah. Drum roll. Yes, thank long you. Drum roll. <laughs> you go with a long drum roll, Brett. Give <laughs> he was, was number 12 on the he, list, he, by the way. He was number three. Ray Floyd actually came, came out as number two. And Watson had, the, Watson had the best average the first five seasons. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, the, the early '80s were just—I mean, they were a crazy time. It was still—it was before the first couple of years before were before the All Exempt Tour, uh, so guys had to play their way in on Mondays, and uh, it was a very competitive time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the best. Uh, that was, but again, I mean, he—he he only, you know, we put quotes on it, uh, but he only won once, uh, and yet was in the top ten twenty-one times, which is really astounding. Choker. By the way, and yeah, you say that, but Kite also is another one who people have kind of wondered about his uh, final round uh, intestinal fortitude. He was he was uh, fifth on the uh, final round uh, scoring uh, or on stroke differential. So again, it's kind of fun to see a lot of ball. I mean, that list is really an interesting list uh, to see uh, who who some of the uh, the clutch closers have been. Because it's important, isn't it, Clayson? Last rounds are different to other rounds, aren't they, when you actually play the oh. game at that level? Su- Sundays are very different days. It takes a whole bunch of different skills to what you need on the first three days to put yourself in position, doesn't it? So which players were at the other end of the final round stroke differential? And Clayton, number 100. That did not make the magazine, Brad. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> if, you, if you can figure out numbers in your head, um, we only had one player who had a negative final round stroke differential, and that was Graham McDowell. And he only missed by 18 thousandths of a stroke. Now, he uh, has not, I think the number is, he's only beaten the field 24 out of 67 stroke play final rounds. I think that number is correct. Um, but yeah, I mean, there everybody was positive, um, but I didn't, I Obviously, we didn't publish numbers for the 78 players who didn't make it in the 78 candidates who didn't make it in the top 100. That 18,000th mm. of a stroke, hey? They all count, don't they? Mm. Well, right, I mean, I was telling Jeff earlier, 
Scott Simpson is number uh, 69. And K.J. Choi is number 70. And they're separated by seven thousandths of a point. And I went back. If uh, Choi, in the 2002 players, made a bogey on the 18th hole to tie for 28th, and under our formula, tie for 28th, you get no points. If he makes par there, he finishes in the top 25, and he accrues points for that start. 2007 PGA at Southern Hills, he bogeyed the 71st hole to tie for 12th, which was a smaller point total than making a top 10. So if that becomes a par, he gets a top 10. Those two holes with the accompanying stroke differential put him ahead of Scott Simpson. Wow. So, yes, we were parsing things uh, quite closely but in it, some instances. That is golf, though, isn't it? I mean, that is the reality yes. of golf. But it yes. really comes down to these tiny, tiny little differences at that level here. And then just to digress for a minute, Clates, how do you hold all this stuff in your head? You amaze me. How did you know that Tom Kite thing just off the top of your head? Where do you get this stuff from? Seriously. How do you not know that? All <laughs> <laughs> you guys. Okay. Everyone knows that. Every- <laughs> You guys are pathetic. Everybody oh. knows that. You uh, you uh, uh, amazing. Clates, was the game better when we didn't have all this stats? You played in an era, well, this kind of stuff, I suppose, was starting, and the European Tour probably a little bit later, but they've got these sorts of comprehensive stats these days, not quite as much so as the PGA Tour. But was the game a better game or a worse game for not having all these numbers at our fingertips? Has it changed the game? or um, No, it's much better. I'm, uh, it's better for the players because they can see where they're doing well and where they're not. So for a guy like... Ogilvy, who we, I spoke a bit, you know, to Jeff at the end of the year about last year, you just go and look at the stats. Say, Jeff, you're 157th in Grange regulation. That's why you're not playing any good. You know, so, so the stats are tremendous in terms of the players being able to measure themselves against the other players. So it's great. You know, you know they can clearly see where they have to improve and where, they, where they're doing well and where they're not. So it's terrific, yeah, really. You know, on that point, uh, we had a conference call recently with with uh, the NBC announcers to start off the year, and I asked about shot length and stats, and kind of with Nabilo and Johnny Miller, uh, Frank Mark Rolfing for some reason weighed in too on looking back at his season stats, um, even though he never had to do such a thing because he didn't play the tour. But but Johnny was saying how he he loved them and would uh, he absolutely would use them today. And one of the interesting points that he made was that for instructors, they're f- phenomenal because these guys, some of them have such big egos, and the only way they could possibly get through to some of them is to just say, well, hey, look, here are the numbers. They actually have some, some backup now when they want to say to a guy, look, you need to be working on this or that. And I thought that was pretty interesting because I think that really is where Phil Mickelson's made a leap. In, in the last few years, as Dave Pels has just said, well, you know, Phil, you may think you're great with a lob wedge around the green, but look at this. And uh, so there, there are many ways it's impacting the, the sport. And, uh, and then also just in the discussions of these things. You know, I'm just looking at what Brett's put together here. You know, we've heard so many discussions over the years about the greatest season, the greatest that. And, you know, now actually you, you, you actually have something to back it up when you look at a package like this. Indeed. The other thing that strikes me, um, Shaq, I'll come to you on this. The other thing that strikes me about this is it reinforces how desensitised we've become to the brilliance of Tiger Woods, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. genuinely extraordinary, and yet we have been banging on him for the last five years. He hasn't won a major. He hasn't done this. Last year there was talk, oh, maybe you shouldn't be player there. He won five times on the tour. 
We just yeah. we put him in a different category. And the statistics bring you back to the reality of how much better he is than everybody I think, else. Absolutely, that's what this is more than anything. Whether people quibble about Jesper Partovic being, uh, which did open my eyes, uh, rather high here. Where is he? Uh, but when you you when you see this whole thing put together, that is what is the takeaway. Is oh my lord, Tiger Woods is unbelievable. And these, this, he's just done things that are that are incredible. Uh, and and you know, I, I will be curious. Brett may have done it already, or he will. But uh, Tiger, of course, led in final round scoring. But it would be fun to see because, for instance, in chipping away at Tiger's credibility the last few years, we've heard how he's just now he's suddenly a choking, miserable dog on the weekends. And uh, you know, here he is on the stroke differential, leading on the final rounds. Yeah, I would be curious if there's been a, a change in the last few years. But still, you realize his dominance in the final rounds statistically has been incredible. Well, try and put into context for us, uh, Brett, a stroke differential of 2.603. That's his overall stroke differential. Sort of over. Try to put that in perspective. What does that mean on a week-to-week basis? Uh, well, the, uh, the average is going to be – it's going to be easier to beat the average on Thursday and Friday because you have the players who missed the cut. And when you're talking about the majors, you're, you have some, shall we say, weaker players – uh, who are in there uh, Saturday and Sunday, though, uh, you're playing against the best players of the week. So it's going to be more difficult, and especially on Sunday, because you figure that everybody's trying to improve their position as much as possible. So what this means is, let's say the field scores 70 every day for a week. That means he's beating everybody, every, uh, not everybody, he's beating the average of the field every day by 2.6 shots. Now, if you and I go out and play, we're going to compare our handicaps, and one of us is going to get a stroke or two. And in that regard, I don't mind if you, if you are four shots better than me. I don't mind getting four shots, and you don't mind giving four shots because that's the game we're conditioned to. It's not the way it's played on the PGA Tour. And in his case, there are a lot of seasons where he's not only exceeded three, he's come close to four shots in the final round. In 2009, his stroke dif- final round stroke differential was 3.560. Now think about this. Every time he went out in the final round, mm-hmm. the field could count on the fact that they were gonna, the average was going to be losing three and a half shots to him. So it's f- no wonder guys have looked <laughs> over their shoulder to him his entire career. So you need a four-shot yeah. lead on Sunday over Woods if you hope to win, statistically. Or that more. Yeah, yeah. Or more. At least four shots. That's, that's extreme. What is that, Clay? That's got to be more than just physical ability, doesn't it? That's an extraordinary statistic, particularly in this modern era, which, you know, I mean, no, there's arguments about it, but it's pretty deep. I mean, there's a lot of good players turning it up every week. To be that much better consistently, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, it is, but like, like Nicholas, he just had the ability to play his best golf when it mattered, and and he was look, he was the best player. He's the best player. It's the best shots. He hits the you know the, the, the best iron shots, and he's the and he doesn't mess up very often. Mm. You know, Jack didn't mess up very often, and nor did Tiger. You know that people carry on about. There's another crazy stat. I mean, they're carrying on about Tiger's seventy nine last week. What, what, what did Nicholas shoot at Cypress Point that day, or people, the last day of the Crosby that year? 80, 85 or something, 86, 82, yeah, right. 45 yeah, right. at the back nine. I mean, 
get over it. He'll be fine. Yeah. I think I had uh, listened to I listened to an, an Irish podcast that's really good about golf. There's three guys about. I think and they're saying I think Woods has missed nine cuts in his career, Brett. On PGA, uh, yeah, it's something. Total. Yeah, it's nine nine cuts, and this technically does not count as ten no, because right. he made the the thirty six hole cut. And isn't there another one where I think it was Pebble Beach one year? They delayed the final round for about four months, uh, and he didn't turn up. The it, 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 went turn down as, it went down as a missed cut. So really, he's missed the weekend eight times in you know however many years he's been playing, which is uh, remarkable. Remarkable stuff. Obviously, Brett, uh, something like this is kind of like, I imagine, it's like doing a PhD or something. There must be a great sense of relief having finished running all the numbers <laughs> and you know having it, all, uh, having it all now out there. Are there thoughts, because you're going to get pushed now, you're going to do something similar for Europe, and then once you've done that, when are you going to put the two of them together and try and work out the actual top 100 best players? Uh, well, the, the challenge with Europe is that uh, is getting all of these statistics together in one place. Um, I, I have not spoken to our foreign affiliates yet, uh, but I'm sure at some point uh, someone's going to be inquiring about that. Would love to put it together. Would take a couple of months, uh, but. I mean, I think it would be as just as interesting to take a look at that list. Putting them both together uh, would not be possible only because um, this is one of those games where you have people spread out so often. Uh, there's no way to compare week to week the European tour and the U.S. circuit only because they're not playing in the same place every week. Um, but I think from taking a look at um, what happens in Europe, and then comparing the two lists, you could get a pretty good, pretty good idea of where things stand. Obviously, there wouldn't be very many U.S. players on that list. Well, no, not not uh, not known as great travelers, U.S. players are they over the year? But there've been a few more recently, and the wraparound schedule's helping that along too, isn't it, Shaq? We've got more <laughs> Americans going and uh, teeing up in the queue school for Europe so that they can play. Yeah. Play there uh, instead. Fascinating stuff, Brett, and it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm sure that uh, the magazine will sell particularly. While we've got you here, Shaq, you mentioned to me something just before we, uh, we started recording today, and I only have briefly had a look at the headlines. It's quite early in the morning here, and I've had a, a rough yeah. start to the day. Tell me what's happened with distance measuring devices, and I think you said Brett's got some thoughts on this as well. Brett, I think you had a background with the USGA public, uh, as editor of their yes. magazine uh, some yeah. years ago, so you're somewhat familiar with the organisation. Shaq, thumbnail sketch me what you were talking about with the distance measuring devices, which I think the RNA are now going to allow, but the USGA hasn't decided as yet. They're going to allow them in their amateur tournaments, not in the Open Championship. And now people want to know if the USGA is going to do the same because they're a uh, pace of play driven organisation now. Uh, they have a glossy ad campaign and uh, and everybody seems to think that these devices are going to speed up play um and i find that um rather uh i guess there are a couple studies at a few events last year that convinced the rna that this was this was happening but i i've watched it in uh at a college tournament and was just flabbergasted how it not only didn't speed up play but actually uh made things worse and and i know and clates i'm sure can speak to this um if a golf course is at all firm if a golf course is at all interesting and has at all interesting greens and features and strategy, uh, I just think they're useless. I really don't know why you would want one. And and, and Rory McIlroy even made that point in supporting them. Um, and then Luke Donald had a fantastic rant on – not rant, but a series of tweets just saying this is stupid. It's fine for the everyday game if you want to use one. 
but these don't belong on the professional level and they don't speed up play. So, but what's interesting is USGA has just said, well, we're still studying and the RNA just came right out and, and said, we're going to allow these in the amateur events. So I, it seems to me there's a bit of a, a split. Now the USGA does have their annual meeting next week, which I'm going to, and we may, uh, they may just be waiting to vote on it and decide there. But uh, it does seem odd that one organization came forward while the other has remained um, unsure. Brett, politics of the USGA and the RNA, discuss. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, start the clock. Um, Anything in that? What, what Jeff's saying? There are, yeah, I mean, I would be surprised if the USGA did not, uh, was not holding a vote in Pinehurst at the uh, annual meeting the second weekend in February. It would be quite unlike them to have the RNA go forward. They do decide things separately. Uh, I know that uh, in certain circumstances it's difficult for people to believe that, but they do pretty much come to the decision separately. Um, there is a big pace of play concern, and I would, uh, I think for most people, if you have a rangefinder and you even take three paces toward a sprinkler head, you should be penalized a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes. Or, or uh, if you're playing in a group, then you automatically lose the hole and you lose the next press automatically. Uh, that'll that'll teach people. And and uh, you know, if I play a lot of different courses, great, fine. Give me one. If I don't have a caddy, tell me where I am and I can speed up play. If I'm playing the same course a hundred times a year and I'm using one of those things, oh. I'm really not paying attention to how I should be playing the game. Mm, Bush, no they 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 do stuff. help. When you blow on over to the next fairway, and that yes, speeds yeah. things up, that Just definitely in case is the you, case. Yeah. Yes, but <laughs> I mean, Clates, Clates, do you are are you in that boat that uh, that they don't really? I mean, the thing I saw at the college tournament that just blew my mind was how many guys would pace off a yardage using their yardage book and the sprinklers and then shoot it. And it just it just drove me nuts. And the college coaches are essentially saying that, that that's what's happened, is they still end up doing a it, – it's, it's almost a double-check system. Yeah, for a pro, you can't play without a yardage book because you've got to know all the numbers. Just, the bush will just get you to the flag or it might get the top of a bunker, on a, a fairway bunker from the tee. But Peter Dawson made a good point – you can refute it because you can obviously fire into the people on the green. But he, he made the point that how can it speed up play when you have to wait until the flag goes into the green <laughs> before you actually get your yardage? So that, yeah. that has to slow down play. By definition, yeah. it's slowing down play because you, you haven't thought about what you're going to do until the flag goes into the green. Mm. So, you know, I, well, I use one because we play a bunch of primes on courses I've never seen and they're useful. But... I saw do you a use it in the field for design stuff? Uh, we do, yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. They're really useful for that. I, yeah. saw, I, I saw a woman the other day at the first hole at Royal Melbourne, those fescue approaches that come out at about 10 yards short of the green. She was, without a word of a lie, she was 10 yards short of that. She was 20 yards from the front of the green, and she had a bushnell out checking the yard. It was so utterly <laughs> <hardly> ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you seriously... <laughs> Nothing against Bushnell. It's not their fault. No, no, it's not Bushnell's fault. Uh, I think no. we've already lost them as a sponsor, Jeff, so there's no point trying to cozy up now. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, too late for that, yeah. It, uh, what about – I wonder. I, I'm sort of split on this because I – I play. What do you like about them? What I'm do not. You sure, think I don't. Is... I don't like anything. I don't use one, and I don't oh, know okay. that I ever would. But 
the obsession that people who play off sort of the handicap range I'm in between 10 and 20 who seem to have this obsession with how far they are from the hole, given that they none of us actually know how far we're going to hit each shot anyway, I tend yeah. to think that often that does actually speed things up. If you don't have to go looking for – most of the courses I play don't have sprinkler head yardage. Just Sydney, it's not a thing that we have. So you've only got your 100 or your 150-metre marks. And there's an awful lot of pacing backwards and forwards to this stuff to figure out whether it's, you know – this club or that club, and if you can pull out the finder from just where you stand and do it, I think that actually does speed things up a bit. In your handicap, I, mean, I'm not, I don't think at the Australian Amateur that that's necessarily the case, but certainly the level I'm playing at, I think in some circumstances it does make things quicker. That's just my my gut feeling. Not that I use them because I know but that I can't hit it. Go- golfers will utterly drill out of themselves the ability to actually look at a green and yeah. pull a club out. Yeah. And there's something to be said for that. I think it was. Did they? Somebody. I think they. You'd know this, Clay. I think it was Faldo when they were doing Thirteenth Beach, just as a bit of fun. I think Cashmore, who co-designed with him, just to test him, was like, "How far do you think that is?" And he was within five or ten yards over a range of two hundred yards most of the time, just by eyeball, which is a skill in itself, isn't it? Wouldn't hurt golfers to learn. Most guys. I'm pretty good. At that. Yeah. I can go and play and guess the yardage within, certainly within five or ten, but, but. What happened to people just looking at a target and pulling a club out and hitting a shot? I mean, you off sixteen clates. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know what well, I mean. By definition, they're duffing one shot a hole. So exactly, what does it matter? I mean, it's just crazy. And if it wasn't the last one, it's likely to be the next yeah. one. Of course, they didn't. Well, when did the yardage book didn't start until the so the whole yardage notion was a is a fairly recent construct, isn't it? I mean, Kel Nader yeah. never played with the yardage book. He tell me when that British Open. Centenary British Open, no yardage book, just eyeball it. I think it's about a six iron, hit that club and, you know, and go on from there. So the whole thing is... Uh, is yeah, you do, it's added to the list of, yeah, wow, how did the game survive without it? I mean, yeah. there are, it's a long list of things yeah. that somehow the game overcame these things that are now sold as the, the saviour. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. On that same thing, I'm going to segue to this because I really did want to talk about this because I find this interesting. Brett, I'd be interested to get your take on this as well. Something else you had on your site, Shaq, I've been doing a lot of reading of your site. It's fantastic going over there and finding all the links to the various stuff. Brandel Chambly's two columns, the five best and five worst things mm. of the last 50 years, and the five worst obviously being state of the game. We love the worst. I'll be interested to get the thoughts of all of you. I want to start with Clates on this. Number five, overly complicated instruction. Clates, mm. discuss. What do you reckon? <laughs> Good or bad for golf? Uh, the the instruction craze of the last fifteen or twenty years. I mean, we we really are nuts for it, aren't we? It's, magazines survive on instruction articles these days, really, don't they? Well, it's both good and bad. The, the instruction when I was a kid was appalling because it was you're aiming too far right, swing into out, keep your head down, drive your legs, just complete rubbish. Uh, um, it, it's so much better now. That's why there's that's why the golfings are so much better. <laughs> um, I think the trackman's clearly. Not that I've used it, but talking to guys who have, it's clearly revolutionised the way people see the game and how it's played and what actually happens as opposed to what they think happened. So you only have to look at the techniques of players to judge that they're, they're better in terms of orthodoxy, which doesn't mean the players are better. I mean, you would never teach Raymond Floyd swing but or Lee Trevino's swing, but teach you Rod Wiggins' swing, but they're incredible players. So... But, but in terms of orthodoxy, the Charles Swartz or Louis Oosthuizen type swing, there are so many more of those now because the teaching is so much better, I think. Yeah. As you say, it's only the first part of the puzzle, though, isn't it? It's not playing golf. Hitting the ball is not playing golf. They're sort of yeah. two so, so I suppose the question is how much of the golf swing has become standardised because of the equipment and the sameness of the equipment and the ability that the, the modern driver to smash the ball and... You, you wonder whether the, the more idiosyncratic swings came about because of the nature of the 
equipment everyone played with, but Sneed had a pretty orthodox swing. Mm. So, so yeah, I, th- I think if you spoke to most players of my era, you know, the 70s, they would say they were derailed by what Nicholas did and people started copying what he did and got away from the way Sneed swung and Demerit and Sarazen and those guys who swung much more in a modern fashion than Nicholas did really. You don't see swings like Nicholas anymore or Weisskopf or Miller, but you go back and you're seeing swings that were much more along the lines of the older Sneed, Sarazen, Hogan type swings really. Mm. So both good and bad, I suppose. It's, it's, it's what you're good and bad. Too, isn't it? The, the players are utterly obsessed with instruction who forget that they actually have to play the game. Mm. Yeah, that, and that's what can you, you get that paralysis by analysis. Yeah. Thing, that's what you've got to be careful of. Shaq, this one's right up yours. Number four, the stimp meter. You're a big fan of the stimp, aren't you? The point Jambly makes, of course, has now become a competition to see who can have the fastest greens at every golf course in the world. Yeah, we, we spent last week at the PGA show hearing about all the uh, the solutions to the game, and nobody mentioned slowing down greens. You know, every every solution they were coming up with uh, ultimately, to me, went back to green speed, cost, and time to play, and difficulty. This fifteen inch cup, we wouldn't need a fifteen inch cup uh, if the greens were two to three feet slower. It would be easier to make putts and. At least for for some of us, I happen to think good players uh, struggle more with mm. with slow greens. But um, so yes, he's correct. This, the stint meter was uh, was definitely one of the better nominations on his on his list. I reckon you're right, Shaq. I reckon if you took Tiger Woods to Mangrove Mountain, the course up the road from me here, he would not hole a putt all day because they're slow, they're bumpy, they you know they don't run out uh, that. Getting you get those players, they get hooked on those really quick greens, don't they? they oh yeah, they, they are. They a... they just ta- they just start the ball and and Clates, We we played it uh, in Scotland on a, on a course where the greens were essentially an extension of the of the fairway, and it takes a little getting used to. But once you get used to it, it's uh, I enjoyed it. I I had no uh, I didn't I didn't miss uh, having three footers that you had to mark and that 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 broke two balls. Uh, uh, it, it it was nice to just kind of uh, get up there and whack it and move on to the next hole. On to the next As hole. the greens are bamboo, they're extensions to the fairway. But yeah. in Australia, certainly in Melbourne, where, where the golf courses are, are all now short for the best players, there's the obsession with this is the only way to defend the golf course. So we're in yeah. this crazy, crazy arms race of one of the greens 14 every week. Now, I saw oh. Golf Digest had that. 21 stats for nerds or something a couple of weeks ago where statistically they I think that certainly they argued that players make more putts on fast greens good putters yeah 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 absolutely but but the other point is of course it all comes back to the curse which is the ball because certainly at Metropolitan where I play where the Masters is this year the, the Australian Masters they're obsessed with having the greens fast because how do we defend the golf course well you defend the golf course by ha- having a sensible ball and taking it back to being a long course instead of a short course. But so, so you know, to me, it's all tied up with the ball and the crazy distance it goes and the obsession the, the, the egos in the club have with defending the course and making sure that 20 under par doesn't win. Remind well, me, Clades, I'd love for, to hear you tease out the notion of whether a golf course needs defending at some point. Sorry, Shaq, I just, I'd love to hear Clades yeah. talk about that as a concept well, anyway. Well, that's right because 
that's the members' club, essentially, in the club championship, there was one player who played to his handicap. In the whole club, in every grade, one player played to his handicap. And so my argument is, well, why are we defending the golf course? There's one player in the club who can actually play to his handicap in a stroke rank over 36 holes. This is utterly ridiculous, but... Sorry, Shaq, I didn't mean to cut you off there. You were No, no, no. I was just – What the irony in this is that the superintendents uh, who are great at what they do, but they're often the people who take it personally when somebody shoots a low score on their course, and yet they're the ones who are so good at what they do that they present conditions that make it easier for somebody to shoot a low conditions score, and it's just score. it's just a strange dichotomy. Okay. Yeah. There's plenty of meat still on that boat. Number three, Brett, I'm coming to you on this because you've got a USGA connection, I've decided now. The rule against <laughs> anchored strokes. Number three, worst thing to happen to the game in the last uh, 50 years. Uh, and I was argument. hoping you were going to come to me for slow play. I'll, uh, I'll let you have well, slow play as well because I've done the nasty thing and given you the anchored stroke rule. I mean, there's, uh, there are a lot of situations where you really – it's very difficult to know how to – how to write a rule. Rules are not easily written. Uh, I've spent enough time with the people in rules and competitions to know that it's a very difficult craft. That said, um, sometimes you get so kind of wrapped up in the idea of how you produce a rule that it takes a long time to actually get to the rule. And this is one of those situations. Um, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with, with anchoring as a concept but I have a, a problem with the anchoring as the execution. And that was the problem, essentially, that the USGA had, in that how do you, once you get to the point that people start doing it, and you say, well, they're not successful doing it, then when they are successful, how do you institute the rule without really you know, uh, hacking off all the people who weren't successful at one time, who now have perfected the craft? And that's the, mess uh, that's the that's the biggest challenge that the USGA and RNA have, because they're they're always going to be behind the curve. The manufacturers are always going to be ahead of them with R and D. The players are always going to be ahead of them in terms of implementation. You see how quickly something catches on on tour, mm. okay. and you can't write a rule fast enough mm. to to adjudicate some of these things. Absolutely, slow play, free shot. I don't play anymore. I don't. I really don't play much anymore because of slow play. Period. Interesting, Clays. You, you kind of think the opposite. I want to get Clays in this because I've had this discussion with Clays before. You don't see slow play as being such a huge problem, do you, Clays? Well, I think it's the most overrated problem in the game. Well, let, let me make that argument. I played golf last night. Two of us went out and played. We turned off at five o'clock and we played nine holes in an hour and ten minutes. So slow play is only slow if you play at the wrong time. Or, but of course. Most people are stuck with playing at the wrong time. They're stuck in the Saturday morning four ball at 8.15. And it takes, mind you, Metro, it takes, we play in four hours, 10 every Saturday. So it's, you know, That's it's okay. Cool. But to, to me, the major cause of slow play is just people waste time. I, I know how, when I got put on the clock on the European tour, how, how much faster you play because you just played faster because you paid attention to playing faster. So people just mess around, fool around, just generally waste time but yeah. the game doesn't have to be played in a four ball at 12 o'clock so golf is an incredibly quick game if you go out by yourself or go out with one other person at four in the afternoon and play golf it's a great game to play and you can play it really fast so it's only slow in the instance when you're stuck in a big field 
So just get out of the big fields. If you hate slow play, get out on your own and play early or play late. You can play incredibly quickly. Yeah, but of course, Clades, you're one of those who enjoys the game for the game itself rather than the score for a lot of people, and perhaps you're yeah. one of those people, Brett. Did you enjoy the whole well, Mike, competition I, I, golf? Is that... here's, the, here's the thing, Mike. Like 10 of the last 12 rounds I've played have been in the U.K., and I would love to play in Australia, and it drives me crazy here in the U.S. I decided about 15 years ago I was going to—I was a, a you know a quasi runner—and I decided I was going to find out how good I, I could become. And I yeah. trained for a couple of marathons, and I realized one day I can warm up, stretch, run 20 miles, come home, cool down, take a shower, have something to eat, and take a nap. And a group that I would be with on a Saturday is still on the 15th hole. And yeah. it's not that I'm a fast runner. It's that they're slow golfers. Now, yeah. I enjoy, if I'm out with a group, like if the four of us went out, we would have a fantastic time Yeah, because uh, on a social basis. And that's part of the game. But I love you guys, but I don't want to spend six and a half hours with you guys before we get to the grill room. No. So that's and the difference for me. Everybody gets too obsessed. Everyone's too obsessed with scoring at golf too rather than just playing and having fun. They, they, they always want to write a number down at, at the end of every hole, which is, I mean, partly yeah. it's the point of the game, but you know, it's not really if you want to have fun. That, you know, there's a whole lot in that that I'd love to uh, to hear you expand on too, Clades, because I know you've thrown that up on one of the forums here in Australia a couple of times and you get howled down every time, don't you? Isn't it the whole point of golf? Why are we playing if we're not keeping score, Clades? What is wrong with you? It's, uh, <laughs> it, is, it is how people think it. I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. You know? the, the whole point seems to be to get it in in less shots than you did last time. So that would be an interesting discussion to have. Number one, of course, in the worst things happen, losing Tony Lima and Payne Stewart, which I think is pretty self-explanatory and... Most people would agree with that. Two, uh, two great golfers taken too early. Gents, we've been at this for nearly an hour, so we better wrap it up. Brett Avery, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you along. Really enjoyed it and love to get you back sometime, perhaps when you start work on the European project. I'm keen to see yes. that come into being. I'll be sure to let you know. Fantastic. Thank you for the invite. Yes, no, and, uh, and thank you for accepting it. Jeff, uh, Jeff Shackelford, always good to have you aboard. Thanks for taking some time today, mate. All right. Thank you, Rod. And uh, to Clates down there in Melbourne, always good to have your thoughts as well. And uh, looking forward to chatting again in the not-too-distant future. Thanks, Rod. And that wraps it up for State of the Game, episode 33. A little bit late, but we do hope that you've enjoyed it now that we finally got around to recording it. We'll be back again to do it all in a couple of weeks' time. Looking forward to your company then on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.